if I can have the little ones come on up. How are you guys doing today? Hola. I like your new one. I like that. So how many of you guys have heard of Moses? Moses? We all heard of Moses? Now, what's Moses most famous for? <laughs> remember? Ten Commandments. Where did he get the Ten Commandments? Everybody remember? God. He got them from God, and he went up, he went into a boat, right? And he fished, and he got the Ten Commandments at the bottom of the sea? No? Where'd he go? He got him on a mountain. Do you remember he went up the mountain? Okay. So Moses goes up a mountain, and he goes way up high on a mountain, and he goes high up to the mountain, and who does he talk to on the top? Well, not you. I'll let one more person. Where, where do you think he goes? Where do you think he goes? He talks to who? He talks to God. So Moses talks to God on the mountain, and then he comes all the way down. He talks so long to God that the people down below, the Hebrews, the Israelites, think that he's disappeared. Did you know that? And he's talking face to face with God. Now, when he comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. Glowing. Why do you think his face is glowing? What do you think? Because maybe God blesses him. Maybe God blesses him. Why do you think his face might be glowing? How bright do you think God is? Yeah, very bright. <laughs> that bright. So God's face is so bright that it says, if we look upon God, we would die. Right? We would die. He's that bright. He's so bright that we would die. And yet, somehow, God hides his face from Moses. And so when Moses sees God, he looks on his back, but he catches some of this glory. This glory we call, it's called Shekinah glory. It's this weird name for it. But it's so bright that when Moses comes down, his face is glowing so bright that the people are scared. Would you be scared if your mom or dad came into your house at night and they turned out the lights and their face was glowing so bright that it hurt your eyes? Would that freak you out? It'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Now, what if they walked into a room and it was so bright and we turned out the lights here and it was the middle of the night and it was so bright that we all had to put on sunglasses? Would that kind of make you scared? That's what happened with Moses. He was that bright. Okay, now, Jesus walked up onto a mountain with James, Peter, James, and John. You know who Peter, James, and John are? Who are they? Peter, James, and John. They're disciples. And who are Peter, James, and John? Which disciples are they? They're his best buddies, right? They're like Jesus's, they're the main three. They're like his best friends. Do you have best friends? Who are your best friends? You have some best friends? Oh, best friend, yeah, all right. Do you guys have best friends? You have best friends? All right, do you have a best friend? All right, you have a best friend? And you have a best friend? Her name is Kai. You have more than one? And Jesus had some best friends. And so these best friends, they all come up, 
And Jesus goes up onto the mountain. And then guess what happens to him? <clears throat> he sees Elijah and Moses. How in the world did Moses come back down? He actually sees Moses. Moses had died, and Elijah had died. And these two start talking to Jesus. Now, what would happen if you saw Moses and Elijah, who's a famous prophet who had died a long time ago, start talking to your mom and dad? Or me. Or you. <laughs> would that, would that kind of make you scared? What do you guys think? Would it make you scared? I don't know. Would you be scared or would you think it's cool? I don't know, what if Spider-Man came down and started talking to your mom and dad? Would that be cool? Or Iron Man? Godzilla? All those things, would that be cool? <clears throat> but here, Elijah and Moses come down, and they start talking to him. You can come on down. And they start talking to him. And so Jesus is talking to Moses, and he's talking to Elijah. And so Peter and James and John say, hey, we've got to build houses for these three. Why do you think they need the houses? Because they think that Moses and Elijah are just as good as Jesus, and they like, we got to build houses for them. But what's the, why, why would they need to build houses for these guys? Moses and Elijah have already been dead for a long time. They've been in heaven. Do they need houses if they've been in heaven? Not really. They don't. They don't. They don't know, do they? They don't know any better. And so guess what starts to happen? Jesus starts glowing. But when Moses came down, he was glowing because he'd been in the presence of God. Jesus starts glowing because he is God. <clears throat> so Moses was reflecting God's glory, right? He was shining like the sun, you know, like the moon, excuse me. You know what the moon does? The moon reflects the sun, doesn't it? But Jesus starts glowing like the sun because the sun is the source of the light. Jesus is God, and so he starts glowing. And then God the Father says, this is my son. He tells Peter, James, and John that this is my son. So why do you think that God said, this is my son? Why do you, oh, I'm going to let you answer in just one second. Why do the rest of you think that God said to Peter, James, and John, Jesus is my son. Because he is his son. And why do you think they needed to know that? Do you know? Why do you think? You can take a guess. Why do you think the disciples had to be told by God that Jesus was the son of God? Do you think they knew it? They didn't know it, did they? I mean, they kind of knew, but they didn't really know. If God came down and told you Jesus was my son, then that really makes a big difference, right? And they're going to need to know that later because what happens to all the disciples? Do you know? They go to jail? They go to jail for Jesus, and a lot of them even die for Jesus. And do you think later on they have to know that, that the person that they are going to die for is God? Yeah. yeah. So it's a big faith thing. So this person that we live for, this person that we serve, is God. It becomes really important. 
you serve God. And God here on this mountain told them all about that. It's where, yeah, we all want to meet him. That's good. And you can meet him, right? How do we meet him? Heaven. Well, we meet him in heaven, but we also can ask him into our hearts, right? But we can also meet him at the end of the world if it happens. That too. We'll meet him at the end of the world. That's good. That's very good. All right. Go have a seat. Good job. Good questions. Good. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, as we come before you <clears throat> this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any air that it may speak and open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. Lord, as we open your gospel and meditate on the transfiguration, I pray that you would impress upon us the meaning of the transfiguration, the meaning of of this transformation and its meaning in our lives. The meaning of Jesus being the Son of God. Amen. So we get this passage, the transfiguration. Uh, a lot of us read this passage. I don't know how many of you have read this passage in Scripture. Uh, I, I've read it in Sunday school a lot, and you can turn the lights on, Jonathan, if you want. Um, I've read it a lot in, in uh, Sunday school and growing up. Uh, it's one of those weird passages in, in the Gospels that we, we, we think about, we read, and um, we even hear sermons from time to time. And I kind of wonder, like, and I growing up, I wondered, like, how does this really apply, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those passages, like other times Jesus talks, and he'll tell us something, like, about anger, and we, that's obvious. We understand how anger applies to us. Or um, uh, don't lust. Well, that's easy. Don't lust. That applies to us. He'll talk to us about poverty or wealth or other things. That's obvious. We understand. But how does the transfiguration actually apply to us? Have you thought about it? Why is this passage in Scripture? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean for us? Why is it here? Why does Matthew put it in the location it's at? <clears throat> so Matthew 17:1 it says this. After 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up <clears throat> a high mountain, excuse me, um, by themselves. So he goes up a high mountain by themselves and after 6 days here, the 6 days he's speaking of, you got to actually turn back one chapter. And if you turn back in that one chapter, you read this. There's this trip to Caesarea that he makes. Matthew 16, 22 to 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say <clears throat> John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Matthew, in 16, 13 to 16, <clears throat> we skip down, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and 
said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so in this previous passage, you have the famous passage of who do you say that I am? And Peter excelling, you are Jesus, the Son of God. And you have this high moment where we, where we get like, wow, Peter has gotten it. Like, Jesus has to be so proud at this moment. You're, you're the Son of God. And he, he's got to be going, oh, finally. These disciples, they mess up so often. And here, Peter, of all people, gets it. And then in the same conversation, just a little bit later, Jesus talks about, all right, well, I'm going to go sacrifice myself for the sins of the world and, and, and lay down my life, and this is what's going to happen. And Peter says, may it never be, Lord. We're going to save you. Let's not have this happen. And Peter rebukes Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So in the same exact conversation, this happens, or set of teachings at least. A high point and a low point. You, you, you gotta, I would just pay money to watch Jesus at this moment as a teacher, just going like, yeah, oh my gosh, what in the world is wrong with these people? You have the high and you have the low. <clears throat> now this passage is going to build in to our passage today right? Matthew puts this at the end. Uh, remember, there were no chapters, there were no verses um, until 1200 AD. Uh, a British monk and a couple other people <clears throat> put these chapters and verses in, and so Matthew is connecting these for a reason. But Peter's actions here aren't his own, and Jesus points that out. Jesus points out and he rebukes Peter as Satan. He says, look, these are Satan's actions. He says, get behind me, Satan. It's worth remembering and thinking on it and dwelling on it that sometimes Satan comes to us disguised as a friend and the path of sin looks like a merciful one. It's a good lesson to us because sometimes the righteous path is painful and sometimes it's awful. It isn't always candy corns and unicorns. And a lot of times we think that. A lot of times we think that if it's a holy path, it must be pleasant and sweet. But then Jesus goes into a very difficult teaching. And it may be that Matthew mentions the transfiguration in the following teaching for a reason. Or it may be simply that the transfiguration happens after this teaching because Jesus needs to show the disciples and prepare them for this after this teaching. Maybe Jesus is driving home the point. Either way, it likely happens to drive home the point which Jesus makes to his disciples. And here's what it is. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, if you think about that, 
That is a difficult teaching. It was a hard teaching to hear at the time, but it was a teaching on which many of the believers, many of the people actually even reading Matthew's gospel, it was one on which they were going to memorize. It was one which they were going to meditate on. It was one in which I think many believers were going to take to their grave. You see, in Matthew's day, And in the early church's day, and for the next really several hundred years, many believers were going to suffer brutally at the hands of Roman and Greek and Turkish and whatever in the ancient Near East, uh, excuse me, in the ancient Roman world, at the hands of persecution. They were going to be persecuted for their faith. All of the apostles, save the apostle John, were going to die for their faith. Every single one. And the apostle John was going to be imprisoned for at least a decade, if not longer, for his faith. They were all going to live this out. They needed to understand what this meant. Most believers in the early church were going to know what it was like to live in terror for their lives. They could lose their life at any moment for their faith in Jesus. In fact, at the early councils of the church, when we just read the Nicene Creed, when they gathered together for the Council of Nicaea and the other councils, they also viewed them as a kind of celebration for making it through the many persecutions. Many of the church fathers showed up permanently disfigured for their faith. But the persecution had largely ended, and they were very grateful. This warning by Jesus has been heeded by believers under persecution for thousands of years. But it's the event that comes next that I think really drives home the message for the disciples and for all of us. You see, the disciples seem to waffle on just who Jesus is as evidenced by by Peter's back and forth just before Jesus' teaching. One moment, you're all supporting Jesus. The next, there's a rebuke because you back off of it. And in a sense, we're all like Peter. Even even if you're strong believers, I mean, how many of you have waffled on who Jesus is, right? I mean, we say Jesus is this, but do you actually act out and live as if Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right? I mean, we most often display this in how we share our faith. Do we really believe that He's the Son of God and that He is the Savior of the world? If we believe that, then are we sharing our faith with others? Do we believe that He actually is the one who saves others and brings them into heaven? If we do, then why aren't we sharing our faith with our friends and family and neighbors? Right? Are we actually living out what we profess? Have we backed off in difficult times? So in a sense, we are all like Peter. We all stumble. And Peter and the disciples walked with Jesus. They saw all of his miracles, and they still struggled to see him as God. And even when they did, they had massive boo-boos like this. And so when Jesus tells them what the cost of following him really is, that's a tough word. And so then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. And it says there, he is transfigured or transformed. Now, the change 
that Jesus undergoes is quite dramatic. It says that he's metamorphose, or metamorphosis. He's changed. Now, this is similar to what happens to Moses when Moses comes off Mount Sinai, where he spoke to the Lord. Exodus 24, 16 to 17, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called, to Moses, called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Exodus 34, 29 to 30, when we skip down there, says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Anyone who knew their scripture would instantly have thought of this. Right? When they read this in Matthew, they would instantly have thought of Moses. And it would have drawn their minds to this. Elijah, when, when Jesus begins talking to Elijah, they would have instantly have thought about the prophet Elijah. And that was pretty spectacular. But also, it would have drawn their minds to the fact that constantly in Matthew, people were asking, is Jesus the prophet? Is he Elijah? Come again. This question keeps on being asked about Jesus. Elijah didn't shine, but he was taken up into heaven by the Lord. And there was something very special about this prophet. And here you have two uber-powerful prophets speaking to Jesus. But here you have further proof that Jesus is not the second Moses and he is not Elijah come again because both of them are speaking to Jesus. But Jesus is transformed. And unlike Moses, Jesus isn't reflecting the light of God. You see, Moses was just a moon. Jesus is the Son. And it's a radical difference. That's what the disciples are seeing. Because the Son gets brighter and brighter and brighter. The Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, the disciples are confused. And they begin to say, look, hey, there are three great prophets before us. Let's build them each a house. I mean, why wouldn't we build them a house? This is Moses and Elijah, and they have come to dwell with Jesus. They're all pretty impressive dudes. Let's make them a house. Let's talk to all of them. And you can see the father now above going, oh. This is my son. This one is my son. The glowing gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Just in case you didn't get it, Shekinah glory, brighter and brighter and brighter. Not these two who aren't glowing, this one who is glowing. 
brighter and brighter and brighter. And they are afraid. They are terrified. Why? Because the sun is glowing. God is shining. Yahweh is before them. And he glows. And he's brighter. And he's brighter. And the other do disappear. They are not God. And when it is over, only God stands before them. This is your God. How often do you think the disciples drew upon that image in the following years? In prison, when they were being tortured, when Peter was crucified upside down, dying for his Lord. When Thomas was crucified sideways. When they were being burned or skinned or whatever else the ways they died. When they were suffering, when they were sharing their faith, no matter what went on, they drew on that image. They remembered. You see, we're creatures of limited imaginations. We too get focused on the here and now. I don't know if you've ever seen a horse in a parade. They wear blinders. There's a reason that they wear blinders when they're in a parade. Uh, horses are prey animals, and when they're in a parade, they're surrounded by predators. I don't know if you knew that we humans are naturally predators. Yeah, we're omnivores. We eat meat and we eat um, vegetables. Uh, but omnivores, we have uh, eyes in the front of our heads because we're focused forward. We're actually predators that also eat other things. But horses aren't naturally meant to be in, surrounded by you know, meat-eating animals. Uh, they're not naturally, they're, they're designed to not like that right? They have eyes on the side of their heads. They can eat, see wide and, and all around themselves, and that's to avoid things like us. And so when they're in a crowd like us, they don't naturally like it. They want to get away from that. And so one of the ways that you can help them focus is you put blinders over their eyes so they can just see straight in front of themselves, and that helps them focus. And in the parade then, they can keep on going, and they can learn how to handle a crowd of people because they don't see all what they would see as hungry people looking at them trying to eat them. And we too, as human beings, though, we can kind of get blinders on our eyes and focused on the here and now. Focused on what's going in front of us. The disciples, when they were walking with Jesus, couldn't see the bigger picture. And that's really what happened to Peter. I want to set you aside, Jesus. I want you to not go through this torture. He didn't understand what the larger thing that was happening. Now, later on, after the crucifixion and resurrection, he understood what Jesus was about, and he very much got it, especially once the Holy Spirit came. We as believers often have blinders on our eyes. We don't understand the bigger picture because we think 
only about what's in front of us. The Transfiguration helps remind us, and Transfiguration Sunday helps remind us that Jesus is so much bigger than we are. What are the blinders that are in your eyes? What is blocking you? What are they blocking you from seeing? What are you called to in your life by God? What has God got for you? Whatever it is this morning, commit yourselves to prayer to remove those blinders. Let the Father take them from you. Ask the Spirit to help you to see things with Jesus' eyes. Ask Him to help you see what He has for you and commit to moving forward and doing the things that He wants you to do. It may be scary at first, but it's always worth it. What does Jesus have for you? And that's my prayer for you all this morning. Pray that prayer. Don't be afraid of the answer. It's usually pretty cool. Amen?